0: Reading Corner today, I'm pleased to be welcoming back Kate de Camello. We're going to be talking about her latest uh, published novel, The Beatrice Prophecy. Uh, Just to give listeners a little bit of a flavour, here's an excerpt from the beginning of the novel. It is written in the Chronicles of Sorrowing that one day there will come a child who will unseat a king. The prophecy states that this child will be a girl. And because of this, the prophecy has long been ignored. The Beatrice prophecy is set in a world reminiscent of medieval Europe. It's the story of a young girl who can read and write, even though it's forbidden for girls to read and write. And only powerful men have the privilege of literacy. At the start of the story, Beatrice is discovered by a monk. She is bruised, bloodied, crying, crying and shielded by the monastery's goat. Where has she come from and who is she? It's a mystery. And as the story unfolds, Beatrice sets out on a journey where she will put right or wrong and play a part in building a world where wisdom is valued above baseless power. So, Kate, is that a reasonable summary of the book to get us going?
1: <laughs> Two things were going through my head as I was listening to you, and the first one was uh, had absolutely nothing to do with me. It was rather, oh boy, I want to read that book. So, thank you for making it sound so good. And the second is, I love that you said it's a world reminiscent of medieval Europe, and so because this is a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is not historical fiction. And um, you, the discerning reader, picked up on that. And then there was another thing that made me kind of want to cry in your introduction, which is wisdom over baseless power. I was very moved by all of that.
0: We'll come back to lots of those points. Fairy tale is one of the things that I wanted to pick up, but I want to start with beginnings. And actually, the story doesn't start with Beatrice, it starts with Answellica the goat and the description is Answellica was a goat with teeth that were the mirror of her soul large sharp and uncompromising she's clearly one of my favourite characters in this story and there's a lot to talk about when we think about her I think I want to start with where she actually came from. If, if
1: indeed you can remember. (laughs) Yeah, no, you know, it's, I, I don't remember it The, the, if I can give a longer answer about the story in general, um, what happened was I, um, I started this, my mother had passed away in 2009. I started it towards the, in the summer of that year. And, um, I got just like maybe 40 uh, pages in and in a second draft. And then I forgot about it. I found it eight years later when I was cleaning out of the closet in my office. And it had been so long since I'd seen it, that I could look at it like something that had nothing to do with me. And I saw that it was a story that needed to be told. And um, all I know is when I sat down to write it. I've gone back through all my notebooks when I started writing it, that goat was um, there from the very beginning, but also, and Swalika is one of those characters who you wait and dream of when you're a writer. um, And then you spend um, a a whole long period hoping that this character doesn't take over the whole book because she's so strong, so domineering and kind of lovable. You know, and so it was just like, but I knew it was Beatrice's story. So it was always kind of like this wrestling between Beatrice and and Answalica.
0: Interesting. Um, A question that I'm sure you have been asked many times before, but there is a bond between child and goat. And in a lot of your stories, there is this bond between an animal and a child who's in some form of crisis it's often a dislocation from a parent, not necessarily a parent who isn't there, but there's definitely a dis- dislocation of some kind, as indeed there is in this story, even though it's not a you know, a, a terrible relationship, she's searching for her mother. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Is that something that you notice in your own work?
1: You know, I do notice it to the point where um, I have to not notice it or else, it, it, because it's such a... Writing is kind of instinctual for me. And it's uh, that thing where I'm kind of writing behind my own back. And because this bond has showed up, Ramona, the dog, speaking of dogs uh, you know, and animals, it's almost something that I have to not pay attention to because it's something that the eight-year-old in me is part of telling these stories and getting to that that part that is looking for the missing parent because that was the case with me. And um, I was really sick a lot as a kid. And I grew up with a, a standard poodle named Nanette. And I was spent a lot of time on the bathroom floor with fevers. And Nanette would always come and sit right beside me. And it's funny because I've talked so much about how animals show up in the stories But it isn't until talking about this book that I go all the way back to Nanette and think, okay, that's central to a lot of what I'm doing is just that comfort of and loyalty of an animal and that bond. You know, it was she and I were up three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning on the bathroom floor. And my mother always used to say she must have been a nurse in a previous life. And when I think about it, that's the, the second illustration that Sophie does in the book, with Beatrice, yeah, and Answalica together, like that, would have been very much like Nanette and I on the bathroom floor.
0: I don't know whether you've been asked this before. I rather imagine you have. But does faith play into your writing?
1: You know, the act of writing for me is, at, at the risk of sounding grandiose, is a, it's, a, it's a spiritual undertaking, and telling a story is a way to. Connect um, with something much larger than I am, and smarter than I am, and um, and so it feels like an act of faith to do it, and it feels like a way to get to the best part in me, and also the best part of other people, and to find faith and hope and love there in a subterranean way. Does that make sense? It's all there, and I go down digging as my best self and find these things that are there um, and that we forget about. Does
0: that make sense? It does. I wanted to ask you something really specific. I said I might ask things that are completely off beam. And that's to do with the kind of symbolism around, you know, the religious symbolism around goats is a really interesting one. I think in Matthew where, you know, people are, are divided into sheep or goats. And there's about standing on the left hand side and the right hand side of God. And then when we come to your, the end of the book, and you've got Jack Dory on one side and the goat is actually on the right. Now, this is probably completely
1: madness, but I was just well, intrigued. It's, it's really interesting, though, because um, it, it goes exactly to what I was just saying that that thing of tapping into knowledge that I don't know that I even have, because I don't. I don't know that part of Matthew with the sheep and goats, but yet there is something wiser and much more profound that is available to me through the telling of the story. And it also goes to writing behind my own back. So it's funny because I, a couple months ago, I had a dream where um, I had a, a St. Lucy crown on her head and, you know, the crown of candles. And um, it was just, such a great dream and I said to Sophie Blackwell can you draw that for me and she did and so I mean there's all this stuff that is under there that is smarter than I am and I'm working with something that is better than I am.
0: Sort of channeling in a way.
1: Yes you know there's a wonderful book by the writer George Saunders um, called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain about um, writing and he teaches it's kind of a masterclass that he gives to his students, but he does it through Russian short stories. And he talks so much about uh, this and quotes Milan Kundera, that if the novel isn't smarter than the writer, then the writer isn't doing a very good job. And so that's kind of how I feel. It's, it's my best self. And I can't imagine not getting to do this work. You mentioned dreaming there.
0: And, of course, dreaming is an important part of this story, too. And I found that dream of the seahorse with the one eye and the falling, which is sort of patterned through this story, each time incrementally, giving us a little bit more really compelling. Um, Did you see that um, as an image? I mean, how did that come about?
1: That image? In the intervening years, when I forgot about this novel, every once in a while, that that seahorse would go through my my brain, and this is what I would think: I would think, "What is that from? Where did I read that?" And it wasn't. It, it was just that image is the one that, over the the eight years that the novel um, was there and waiting, was the one that I would come back to. And I didn't. I didn't even know that it was something that I had written. And then when I um, I wrote a speech, well, when I did all the promotional stuff over here, and I talked about remembering that seahorse. Occasionally, you know, the the thing that's at your the back of your brain, um, the hippocampus, is Latin for seahorse. That's amazing,
0: isn't it? It's right. actually. I believe it's shaped like a seahorse. Like sea horse. That's how it gets its name.
1: Yeah, I just, and it's so, I feel like every book is a gift, but this one and Edward Tulane, it's just like, it, it's like I realize they're a gift. And I feel like I say to my friends, I feel kind of like a furry footed hobbit um, carrying a, something really precious in a goblet that I I can't drop it. And that's what my job is, is to try to not drop the story.
0: So thinking about some of the things that are contained within that precious story then uh, Beatrice is urged by uh, the monk brother Edic when he finds who she is this girl who can read and write but shouldn't be allowed to he says it's very dangerous for you to be who you are and so you must pretend to be someone you're not throughout this story Beatrice is being urged to be invisible and to be mute, and yet she's constantly asserting who she is, (laughs) even her name, to be, Beatrice, to be.
1: Um, Wow, I'd never put that together. Right, and you know, and and just as you were saying that about how, yes, she's told that, but yet she constantly asserts herself, and, um, and she's got the goat at her side as a reminder to, to be herself. And so much of Ansuelica to me is like, I was aware of this and I wonder if you read it this way. It's so much about the transforming power of love. You know, the, the monks didn't know how to get rid of her. They're terrified of her. And then she recognizes and loves Beatrice and that's it. She is mm-hmm. in her best self transformed by love.
0: And other characters are seeking that love in this story, too. I mean, Brother Edic, who we've uh, just mentioned, you know, he's had a loveless family. He's also seeking that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and is also transformed by love. I think I don't know if it's Brother Edic who thinks it or Beatrice about how just the fact that you know that whatever – happens there are people who will come for you no matter what is everything
0: do you know I mean I I did mention in the beginning that it was reminiscent of a medieval setting in so many ways do you know where that aspect of the story came from the medievalism is it because stories at that time were both spiritual if you like uh, the prophecies but also they were informed very much by fairy tale, the writings of that period, you know, even the legends and of the saints and so on. There's a kind of crossover.
1: Right. Yeah, it's I, I know I'm going into fairy tale. Yeah, I'm aware of that when I do it. But the uh, the rest seems to be subconscious. And but it does free up so many things and it makes Words and stories in uh, illuminated manuscripts, just as magical as they truly are, right? Um, because you clear away everything else and you can see them for what they are, which is, you know. And this this story is, uh, when I go back and I can look at it from a distance, this is one of the things that I can see is that. I was a kid who knew that I needed stories and um, I was lucky enough to get them from my mother, but I was also desperate to learn how to read myself. And I struggled when I got to school. I didn't understand phonics. It made zero sense to me. And I was hysterical. I came home and said to my mother, "I, I don't know what to do. I was weeping. And my mother was very pragmatic, said for the love of Pete, calm down. And she said, you're smart. That was gift one. Gift two was, we'll figure out how your brain works and we'll work around it. That was gift two. And then gift three was every day after school, uh, a pile of flashcards with a word on them. And I just memorized the words. And that's how I learned how to read. You know, and there's a moment where um, Beatrice is teaching Jack Dory how to read. And he feels like each letter was a door that led To a lighted room. And that's the way it felt to me when I was sitting there doing those flashcards with my mother.
0: Amazing. One way of reading the story could be that it's saying, in part, that the pen is mightier than the sword. Don't waste your time on revenge, Jack is told at one point in the story. And here, you know, literature and reading are a real threat to authoritarianism. It's very much about giving you an insight into the lives of others so that you can make your own judgments.
1: Yes, yeah, and, you know, it makes me cry to think about it. Um, And, yes, a, a way into understanding other people's hearts, which is what we know literature can do, right? It literally teaches us adults and children, how to be empathetic, how to imagine your way into somebody else's heart. And once you can imagine your way into somebody else's heart, uh, it's a lot harder to hate them or to judge them. You're just more prone to being open and loving in somebody else's life. I've got a personal question really related to that.
0: It's a quote that the reason literacy is important is that literature is the operating instructions, the best manual we have, the most useful guide to the country we're visiting, life.
1: That's actually uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. And even to hear it again now and hear you reading as gosh, I think that is so right.
0: So I wanted to ask you whether there's a time that you can consciously remember learning a life lesson from reading where you know that you've taken a different course of action in life directly as a result of something that you've read.
1: I can go all the way back to being a kid and reading a book, which I think is out of print called Somebody Else's Shoes, about um, a girl whose father was a cobbler. And she would put on other people's shoes. And then she would experience their life, the shoes that had been brought in to be repaired. And there was the popular um, mean girl at school and she went and put her shoes on and found out how hard and miserable things were at home. And it, it changed her. And I remember reading this book over lunch, being out on the playground and uh, watching the bully chasing somebody through the playground. He bent over and I saw on his back that uh, there were marks from a strap, somebody, and, and it all like went together in my head with like, if I put his shoes on, I would find out that this bully is getting beaten at home. And from that moment on, and from that book, I, 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 that, that ability to just think, okay, what if I was in that person's shoes, what would I see? Even at a very young age, I started to do that consciously because of that book.
0: I was thinking when I knew I was going to ask you that question, I thought I can't ask a question unless I can answer it myself.
1: And can you answer it?
0: Well, there are many times, but the one that I wanted to mention was much more recent and it was Jason Reynolds' book, Long Way Down. And I've always known, you know, the cognitive part of my brain has always known that life isn't fair and that some people have to survive in the circumstances in which they are and that sometimes makes them take different courses of action to the action that you might take yourself but I think what reading that book did was make me feel it
1: yeah god and let's just spend a minute with Jason Reynolds um and and talk about what a genius he is and talk about, you know, I always love acknowledgements in books. Okay, I'm loving a book and then I'll flip to the end and look to see, okay, who helped? And um, Jason has in the end of Look Both Ways, um, the most beautiful acknowledgments. He thanks everybody in the neighborhood that he grew up in. And then he he thanks the reader. Mm-hmm. See, I can't do this without crying. And he says, <laughs> I like you. It's what he says to the reader. I like you. I love you. Tell me, how are you going to change the world? To me, that is an that encapsulates every miraculous thing that can happen between writer and reader and, and how it can shift our hearts and make us and empower us to change the world.
0: And in your own story, there's a sort of meta storytelling going on. Where Beatrice, you know, here we come into the real fairy tale element of it. It's almost like um, a thousand and one Arabian Nights. Scheherazade, she's telling the king a story, and he becomes absorbed by that story. He wants to know, tell me how it's going to end.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, the Scheherazade, and uh, that, you know, I, I have two things to say about that. That was in my conscious mind. I was aware that that was going on. It's like, oh, she is literally telling a story to save her life here. And the other thing was how uh, the stories within stories within stories is so appealing to me. And I had to stop myself because uh, within that story that Beatrice tells There was a, you know, there's a seahorse and then the seahorse was going to tell a story. I could see it going on forever. It's just like one box after another opening up before me. And it's like, no, we have to stay on course here. And, but it's just like, it is so compelling to me. Again, it goes back to Jack Dory and the lighted room. That's what stories feel like to me. And to walk from this lighted room into the next lighted room and into the next one. And each lighted room, helps you understand yourself better and helps you understand the person standing next to you better.
0: I have to ask you uh, about the naming of your characters, because I know, I know Jack Dory is a fish, (laughs) but did he he just come to you? He's also called St. Peter's fish.
1: Oh, see, I did not know that. (laughs) Yeah. I knew that Jack or John Dory was a fish, but I could not, The names, you know, and I don't know if we've talked about this before, but that's like the only part of writing that is easy for me. The names come and and the names come and I make sure that I always have a notebook nearby for when they arrive. And then I'm loath to change them. So it's just like, okay, Jack Dory, John Dory. No, I cannot do it. It has to stay this way. That is right. But like, where does Answellica come from? I don't know. It's like, I have no idea, but I feel like they're they're words with springs in them. And if I push on them the right way, they'll lead into the lighted room. So
0: much more that I want to talk about, but I do want to perhaps go back to um, the fact that this story is dedicated to your mother. What made this the story that was to be dedicated to your mother?
1: You know, she's showed up in the acknowledgments before, but this is the first one that's dedicated to her. And it it wasn't as I was working that I was aware of it. It was it wasn't until after I was done that I thought, oh, this is probably so much of where this came from. And, you know, I was aware when my mother was still alive of of the gift that she gave me as far as libraries and books and buying me books and, and paying attention to me as a reader. Um, but this thing of the the flashcards and the words and telling me that there was a way around and through that debt, I wish that I had been able to articulate to her when she was alive. And I, I wasn't even aware of it until I had written this book and looked uh, at all of it and, and thought, OK, this is for my mother, who was extraordinary.
0: Because it is also, in a way, a story about coming back to your mother Beatrice finds her mother at the end of this story.
1: That's a beautiful point because I, I, you know, I get to find that gift that she gave me again. It's not that I ever forgot those flashcards, Mm -hmm. but it's that I never saw it and recognised it for what it was.
0: Kate, it's a truly beautiful story. It's one that I'm going to be returning to and reading many times, I think. So
1: thank you. Oh, no, I thank you. And what a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And I'm really grateful for it.
0: In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.